This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This week on Catch and Shoot 2.0, the Bucks are NBA champions, but it's already time to look ahead to the NBA draft. Will Cade Cunningham be a superstar? Who else will become NBA royalty from this class? We find out that and more from someone who always has his eye on the top prospects. But first, Darlene, let's get to it. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? And thanks so much, Darlene. Welcome to Catch and Shoot 2.0. I am Aaron Berlin alongside with my partner. He is the one. He is the only. His name is Otto Strong. Otto, the Bucks are NBA champions, man. What do you I, think? I am. I'm ha- look, I'm happy for, for, all, for all folks in the Deer District. I'm happy for Rob Peterson, the guy that we had on as, as, a, as a guest, uh, editor over the Athletic. Uh, I, I'm uh, happy for Giannis. Uh, you know, just, just happy all around. I mean, I'm, I'm so, I'm so, I am sorry that uh, – sorry we, could, we couldn't, get, couldn't get that for, for that ship for Chris Paul. But, you know – Hey, oh, hey just, you, just, you just, lose a 2-0 lead in the NBA Finals, you don't deserve to be an NBA champion. Yeah, you don't just deserve saying. to be an NBA. You, you, you don't, but it also just sets up the drama for him to become a Laker and then he and, Le, he and LeBron, you know, get get that chip 19 years in or something like that. I don't know. Man, you, you know, everyone's going to start saying that, like, that's how the summer's going to go. Like, the Lakers are just, you know, there's reports now who all they're involved in, who all they think that they can sign, but also they have no money. How are they going to sign anyway? <laughs> but, you know, it's the NBA. Does money really ever matter? Uh, I, I want to get your take on this. Did you watch yeah. any of the Bucks uh, parade? I saw a little bit of the parade. I saw the part. Of, I mean, the part I think that everybody saw was the part where Giannis is, you know, mocking the mocking the, the the ten count or the twelve count on the on the free throws. I just took. I just going to ask you. About? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was just going to ask you where that ranked among some of the parades that, that you'd seen uh, highlights of. Oh, uh, that that that's that's pretty up there. I mean, that's you know that's like you know in your face Brooklyn, in your face uh, Phoenix, in your face you know everybody just just eat it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I love it because everybody sat there and said you know. Had KD just not had his foot on the line, you know, that's probably a Nets championship. Who cares, man? You play the games, they have oh, outcomes, and, you know, the Bucks earned this championship. And for anyone who says that, like, they didn't, hey, that was a worthy championship coming down from 2-0 against the Suns team. That looked, We said it on this show multiple times. They looked destined for an NBA Finals championship, didn't they? Well, uh, they, they didn't after they went down 2-0 to Brooklyn. And then when they got blown out of the joint by like, you know, 89 points or whatever the hell it was. But, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, they, look, they, they, found, they found themselves. Uh, they righted the ship. You know, you know, we all know the deal. Went four out of seven. That's all it takes. And, Absolutely. Uh, we got it done. Hey, hey, and, you know, Giannis was one of the big steals of the NBA draft. I love that they kept showing that picture of him side by side with the day that he was drafted versus where he is now. Yes. And just how different he looks. Yes. Well, this week is also the NBA draft, 
And you think we'll get anyone that might resemble a Giannis here in about five or six years? Mm, quite possibly, but uh, I think we ought to kick it to somebody who uh, will show us the way. Let's do it. The NBA draft is this Thursday, and to talk about the top prospects as well as those players who could be steals, we're more than happy to bring back our old friend, Adam Stanko, who, of course, is VP and executive producer at 24-7 Sports. Adam, how you doing? I'm good. It's so, so nice to finally meet you, Otto. I didn't get a chance to do it last time I was on, so finally, our formal introduction. So it's Ac- great. Absolutely. Pleasure, pleasure man. So uh, I am the sports editor of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and I say that because the top, likely top pick in the NBA draft is Cade Cunningham, Ar- Arlington's own, as we like to say. I know he didn't play a lot. Of, he, didn't, he didn't stick around for, for his uh, junior, senior year, and he, went, he obviously went to, went to OSU for, uh, for college. But uh, what – First off, you, you real quick, up, down, do you think Detroit's going to keep that pick? I do, although it, there's been a lot of talk recently that, um, you know, other teams could move up, that, that Houston has a real interest, obviously, as you, as you bring up the Texas connection. But just, I mean, his talent alone, uh, clearly being a game-changing guy. And then the other one is, is Oklahoma City, which, again, having that collegiate connection uh, to the area is big, but, you know, I, I, as I think uh, Babcock Hoops reported, they're in talks for trading OKC's pick at six plus uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, I mean, which is, I mean, just a monster package to, to move up. At least Detroit's going to have to consider it. And you think about what the Pistons already have now in place, such a young, really talented core, Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, Killian Hayes, that was just their draft class from last year. And then you throw in, obviously, Jeremy Grant, just what they're building there. And a lot of people came out of the draft last year sort of mocking them, like, what are these guys doing? They're making a bunch of moves. They're trading. They're, they're adding assets. But really, you look at it now, and they have this young core. Now you have the number one pick in the draft. This team could be very good for a very long time. So they have to seriously consider. You don't want to botch giving up a, a franchise-changing player. All that being said, I, I think Detroit ends up keeping them unless the – the deal just becomes too great. And they say, you know what, maybe they're in love with Shea Gilgis-Alexander and say, let's build around him. But um, I think ultimately that they do, they do hold on. to Adam, let's, let's stay with Cade and Detroit. Just how would he slot in to what they're trying to do there? Well, right away, he becomes the most important player in the franchise. I mean, it, I mean, above Grant, I mean, he really does because I think what makes him so special is, and I mentioned this before, but it's just the fact that he plays with such wonderful boys and it's his pace. The fact that there are just so few players in the league um, that, that you can probably count, you know, on, on both hands just in the last 20 years, guys that control the pace of the game. We've seen it with Chris Paul, obviously, in this most recent playoffs. Uh, you see guys like James Harden that way. Kyrie also happens, happens to be that way. Luca plays that way where all of a sudden the game slows down to the level that that player wants it to be played. And that is, it's almost like a cheat code and it's just such a rare trait to have. And then you throw in his size. Uh, he's a much better shooter than I think people give him credit for. He's a better athlete than I think he gets credit for. All of a sudden he's knocked as not being a very good athlete, but he gets to his spots. His IQ is, is through the roof. He's got great vision. He makes other people better. So I think from day one, this guy gets the ball, and maybe we don't see this immense success from day one, but we see the same things we saw in those earlier great players. Like you saw from Luca early on, where all of a sudden game changer from the jump. You see guys like Penny Hardaway, where the entire franchise changes, where he has the ball in his hands and just makes a difference. And, And he wasn't playing with a lot of great players. He was playing with some very good athletes at Oklahoma State. 
um, you know, I don't want to offend the, the, the big 12 hat that, that you're wearing, but he, but he wasn't playing with a lot of great players at Oak, Oak State. But, but he is a guy that um, certainly is going to be just a, a franchise-changing player for them. And so I think right away that's what they're getting. And, they, and the, the other part I would say is they need an identity. I mean, what, what Troy Weaver was trying to build at that point was just try to get talent in. And you got Sadiq Bey. you got this excellent shooter who's going to be a tremendous score at the NBA level for years to come. you got Isaiah Stewart, who had some toughness in the front court. We know about Jeremy Grant and his, and his uh, ability to score, his, his ability to impact games. But now all of a sudden you have a guy that you look at and say, okay, that's our guy moving forward. He's the face of the franchise. I think, I think that's the exact kind of player you're looking for when you, when you talk about the number one pick. Hey, Adam, our, our, our Big 12 cap is falling apart of the seams, but which, which we, may, we may get into that later. But uh, um, So uh, you, you talked a little bit about how he fits in with uh, – how Cade would fit in with the Pistons. But what, what do you think his ceiling is? Uh, Hall of Fame. I, I mean, I, I think you're talking about a guy that, that certainly has the ability to be a 12-, 14-time All-Star, Hall of Famer. I mean, again, the fact that we're talking about just – the rare air that he's in, in terms of having that ability to control the pace of the game is one thing, but I, I think we're talking about a guy who can score at an elite level. He can be a distributor at elite level. And when we see it with, with him playing alongside really great players, I think he'll raise their level of play, but, but also we'll see him reach another level. I mean, it was easy for defenses to focus on him this year, you know, in college and, and there were different ways that they could guard him. But I think, especially when it comes to the vision and the passing, I think we're going to see that reach a whole nother level now that he's not just asked to be a scorer, but also a facilitator and other guys are going to be able to finish. And so, you know, his ability to pass, his ability, like I said, to get to his spots, he can score at all three levels. Uh, I just, I, I think really we're, we're going to see a guy that, I expect him to be in an all-star game in a year or two. Uh, maybe not again as a rookie. That's It's extremely rare. And also we're talking about a guy who's extremely young. I mean, that's the other part, that it's always tough to predict because these guys are always 19 years old when they're, you know, the one and dones. It's really difficult to predict who they're going to be because we don't know about their work ethic. We don't know um, how much weight that ultimately he'll put on mm-hmm. you know how does the strength impact other ass- facets of his game so those things are sort of the unknown variables but what we do know is that he already has great size and length uh certainly for his position we know that he's extremely skilled we know his iq is off the charts and we know that he commands uh, attention during a game and has great vision so just starting from that point alone we know what what his sort of his floor is so in terms of the ceiling I mean, the sky's the limit, really. Absolutely. And, you know, Adam, the thing I, I, I read earlier today is that, you know, Detroit's posturing. They're saying that they're still undecided about what they're going to do with the number one pick. If they do go in a different direction, say a Jalen Green or an Evan Mobley, how much separation is there in your mind between Cade Cunningham and those other two? Well, I, I learned a long time ago from Chad for that you you tear off players and that's how NBA franchises view it. That is it a tier one guy where we're talking multiple time NBA all-star um, really, if he's not the face of your franchise, then he's, he's second in line. That, that's your, your tier ones. And then you start to get into tier two guys that are borderline all-stars that, you know, are not role players, but they're critical to, to your success. Maybe your third option, fourth option. And then you go down the line. 
And in a given draft, you have to sort of look at it and then how teams will evaluate oftentimes. Like how many tier one players do we feel are in this draft and then who fits our needs within those, that tier system? Now, if you have a superstar, you, and usually at the top of the draft anyway, you're kind of evaluating it as though you, you want the best player available. You don't want to miss and say, well, I took a guy I felt like was really good, but this guy fits our system better or something. I mean, if there's a difference – and it's, it's not an incremental difference. If, it, if it's significant, then you're going to go with the, the other player. Um, and so, so you asked that question. It's interesting. First of all, I agree in terms of the, the posturing. I think that's a, a given. And I think we see this every year, every single year, where it seems like there is a clear-cut number one. The narrative has to change over time. We, we know how, how it's created. You know, guys like Bruce Bernstein sit there in the production <laughs> meetings and say, hey, let, let's talk about other guys being in contention for number one. All we talk about is Kate Cunningham. And I think that – so I think that does does change it. The entertainment aspect of the draft starts to change what people think is is who's going to be the number one pick. Cade Cunningham will be the number one pick in this draft. Now, if it's, if it's not the Pistons taking that pick, then it's going to be the Rockets or OKC or someone else selecting Cade Cunningham first overall. But he will be the first pick in this draft. But in terms of the separation, I think the other guys have a potential to reach that, reach that greatness. And, and there, are, there is some dispute. Some people feel that Evan Mobley is the top pick in the draft. You might find some that say Jalen Green is. It wasn't like it's a case where that was, um, that was disputed. And some people feel like Jalen Suggs is awfully close, which is what, is what I feel about it personally. So in terms of the separation, I think you have multiple guys that you could slot into that tier one category that you expect to be multiple time all-stars. And so for me personally, it's, it's, it's Cade Cunningham with Jalen Suggs, just a nose behind him. I, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's flipped by the time their careers are over. And then Evan Mobley right behind that. And then, and then for me, I actually have Jalen Green slotted as, as the fourth best player in this draft. But all that being said, I think you're talking about a tier one group that probably goes five, maybe six deep. Hmm. Okay, so so you see you've got Green fourth, and you've seen, obviously, on some of the mock draft charts, he's as high as number two. Why are so many um, – why, why are people so high on him? Well, a tremendous athlete, extremely explosive. He's very quick. He's fast. Uh, and he's got a, a strong work ethic. I mean, a lot of people love what he's going to be able to bring to the table in terms of his work ethic because that's something, again, it's, it's a variable, but you try to collect as much information as you possibly can. And, and as we had the discussion last time, which you missed, Otto, because, you know, you're on vacation and you missed this riveting conversation that we have. Uh, so we, we discussed the fact that, you know, he shouldn't necessarily be knocked because he goes to G League Ignite and then ends up having a wonderful run of, of games there and really impressed as well while he's playing alongside guys like Jared Jack and Jonathan Kaminga and mm-hmm. You know, so on and so forth. So I, I think the thing is that people know that he's going to put the work in. He's already a tremendous athlete, and he's going to be a very good scorer at the NBA level. I wouldn't be surprised if he's scoring 15 a game as, as a rookie next year. There's no question that he's a professional scorer and has been like the guy in this class for quite a long time. So I certainly think Jalen Green's outstanding. There's just something to me that he's a very good scorer, whether he's going to take that bump up and average 25 a game in his career, let's say in three years, it, he'd need to do at least that to me to bring to the table what I think Cade Cunningham is going to be able to bring to a franchise. So when I, so when I bring it up for myself, it's not about – I don't think Jalen Green is going to be an outstanding NBA player because I do think he is, and I think he's a prototypical wing in today's game. I just think that what you're going to need from him productivity-wise when we already know all the things that Cade Cunningham does – 
is just going to have to be immense. And not saying he can't reach that point, but he's going to have to put in an awful lot of work in order to get there. And I just don't know that that's who he's going to be at the end of the day. Adam, we kind of spoke about this last time, but while we're on the subject of the G League Ignite team, right? Another one of his peers was Jonathan Kaminga. And a lot of people have said that he's kind of slidden down draft boards a little bit. How did evaluators, as we got closer to this week, kind of view what they saw from them through that pre-draft process and through what they saw from the G League process this year? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I know the one knock on on Jonathan Kaminga. And well, uh, first, let me say that the process is interesting because what often happens is that we see uh, opinions start to change as we get closer to the draft and people say, well, why is it? Yes. Part of it is that, again, you got guys like Bruce that are trying to get in there and change narratives and stuff for the betterment of their organization, not going to name any four letters or anything. But I will say that what, what does have that plays a part, but even more so it's that the evaluators that are actually getting a closer look, those people change. So what I mean by that is that, during the year, it's a lot of your regional scouts and college scouts that are getting to look at these guys and really diving in deep. And they also have their set opinions and biases and stuff like that. They also get swept up, like the rest of us do, in what the, the growing narratives are of the college basketball season. And, and so the hype machine starts to build and all those things. Not to say that that's wrong. It's just that now all of a sudden you take a group that's had to focus. And when I say a group that's had to focus, I'm talking about general managers, front office people with the NBA who are obviously scouting these guys they are going to games and doing those things. But now they're also getting the coaching staff involved and getting some of their, you know, depending on the organization, getting their opinions to play a part. And so what happens is now all of a sudden you've got a different collective group that's weighing in on what they think of players and they start challenging their scouts. They start challenging coaching staff is talking to front office people and every organization's different, how they evaluate analytics, uh, how much how much the coaching staff has a say in the draft picks. And obviously that depends on how strong your, your organization is and everything. If there's a culture in which they want to be unified from, from top to bottom. I mean, I've, you, you talk to some, some organizations, they'll tell you that the head coach and the general manager are not speaking terms. So you get through all those things and you say, okay, they already are going to approach things differently. And so now when you start to get into things like individual team workouts, you get into the, combine where there's official measurements there's the interview process all of those things now pro days a different group is setting their eyes on these prospects in a different way and people are seeing them in person plus they're evaluating those things that i mentioned that are the variables that you now can start to see that you have some information on you can find out if how hard a player's work since the college basketball season ended oh, this guy totally transformed his body. He lost 20 pounds. Like, he really wants this. So the desire, the effort, well, again, that's not something that you can measure with a stat line, a box score. What you can find out, though, is how badly does the kid want it? Does that show throughout the process? So that changes. And the one thing I would say, to come back to the point, as this relates to Kaminga that I was hearing before, was that he's kind of a selfish player that he's not a guy that's really great at distributing the ball because he doesn't want to be. He wants to shoot. He wants to score. And while he does, he's an NBA scorer, and again, another guy that's going to come into the league and be able to score right away, what else is he bringing to the table? And that was really the question. So I think when, when evaluators, the second set, 
started looking at him. I think that's where maybe he starts to slip a little bit, not in danger of slipping deep. And by the way, Jonathan, it, some of it could be a smoke screen. He could end up going number five overall, and he could make us all look foolish. We talk all this about Jalen Green and the other guys that everyone's talked about at the top of this draft, and instead it could be Kaminga. That's the guy that comes out as one of the best players in this draft. So I would not be shocked if that happened either. He's explosive. He's a big-time scorer. So Kaminga is going to be an outstanding player, but I think that's the knock that some evaluators have on so you made two really good points that I'm actually really interested in just kind of as a follow-up. But, you know, I, I think of this oftentimes to the lens of, for instance, we just had the Major League Baseball draft, right? And a lot of people will say that when they're going through the MLB draft, one of the things that it's, it's the scouts day, right? Like it's the area, it's the regional scout who saw that player who – uh, had conviction in that player to go to the general manager, say it's Dayton Moore in this instance, and say, this is the guy you need to draft. How much say do the regional or, I, I don't know, area scout is what they're called in baseball, but how much, how much say do those scouts have? And then two, you mentioned kind of the smokescreen aspect of things that happen within the top 10 or really mm-hmm. within the lottery. How much posturing or, um, you know, just rhetoric is going on right now with some of those teams that if they have a guy that they see at five or seven that they really like, that they're trying to get them to fall as well. Okay. So first of all, in terms of how much say scouts have, let's say college scouting has on, on the organization, it all depends on the organization. And, and really it's how, you know, how much of a hierarchy is it? How much do they trust this, this individual scout? Everyone's going to end up having a stay, but there's also now the, the other factor that wasn't in play, you know, even 10 years ago is the analytics department and how much they're breaking down these guys. And we think about analytics is just, oh, they're going to look at what they do statistically. No, it, a lot of it is reinforcing what, you know, what they already know. And they're, and they're trying to rank players throughout the year. Now, the best organizations, it's a collaborative process and they're all getting involved. But even I've heard stories about even organizations where you feel like, you know, for instance, I, I, I've heard something about the Utah Jazz, that it was a collaborative process for the Jazz organization when um, to bring up a Kansas player. They took the big man last year um, as a book and 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 they took Azabuki, And it's really because um, Dennis Lindsay was the one that was spearheading that. And he was the one in love with the player. So even when they start bringing them in for interviews, even that can be skewed if there's one guy up top who says, oh, I really like this guy. So I'm going to ask him a few extra questions during the interview, or I'm going to ask the questions that I think are going to bring out the best answers in him. I'm going to sort of, I'm going to convince the group why we all should take him as opposed to, hey, everyone's going to weigh in and let's have us, you know, all be on an equal playing field here uh, as an organization. And also, by the way, Who's the one that's going to get fired if that if that pick doesn't pan out? It's going to be the general general manager or your president of basketball operations. So they should have a greater say in some sense, but it always should be collaborative. And then at the end of the day, it has to be whether it's your it's your gut, it's it's which analytics do you trust, all those things. But you know, sometimes it's also paralysis by by analysis. I mean, you can have too much information at your disposal and you need some people sometimes to say, you know what, with all this being said, I'm narrowing it down to these factors. This is the guy we're taking as we as we rank them. Um, so that's that's first of all. And then the second question you asked was about the smoke screen. And I, I think that's that's so fascinating. It's everybody does this now, and everybody wants to have other teams thinking one way. So, you know, they zig so we can zag and all that. But it's also extremely important for front offices to understand value in a pick. So I could say, let's say that I think um, I'll, you know. 
trying to think of an example. Let's say you value Chris Duarte and say that you have him as your eighth best player on the board and you start to do some research and you're you part of the job of the front office is to find out how does everyone else in the league evaluate him? And if no one else has him above, let's say 15, well now if you want Chris Duarte, you have to start making decisions. If you're at eight, maybe you, he's your guy and he's number eight on your board, but maybe you're going to say, you know what? I'll trade down to let's say 12, pick up a few more assets because I still get the guy I want, but ultimately um, I'm picking up more to get him. And so that's part of the game too. It's not just who do you value on your big board? Okay. We're at that spot. That's where we're going with, or let's say you're trading up for Chris Duarte. And again, you have him at eight. Well, you know that other teams really covet him at like 14, 15. You may want to get to between 10 and 12 just to be safe to get there. And one of the ways that I know this happens, just to give you an example, is that, you know, like at these private workouts that people will attend, the smart executives and the smart representatives from teams show up at these gyms, not just to watch the players that are there, but one of the things they'll do is talk to the guys working out the players, or they'll talk to other people around the gyms and stuff and say, hey, who else has been here? Who else is asking about this kid? What do they think? Because really what you are trying to do is gather intel. It's not just about evaluating prospects. A lot of people may have similar big boards, but it's about understanding where the rest of the league values a player in relation to where you do. Adam, you talked about paralysis by analysis. I'm wondering, given that we've had basically an extra month, obviously the draft would have been at the end of June instead of the end of July, what effect, if any, does the, the COVID and the protocols and everything that's gone into this have, or do you think it'll have any effect? And if so, what? Well, I think the biggest impact it has is that we didn't really get a true sense of what college basketball players could perform on their stage. We're already seeing such a small sample size, and then you're having to do it without fans in attendance as we're normally used to, and that's going to impact play. So I, I think that piece of the puzzle was was taken away. In terms of getting a true evaluation of prospects, really what got robbed was last year. I mean, if you think about it, we go back to 2020 and you remember all the things that are involved in the process when once the season ends, that play a role. Remember, we finished out basically the season. It ended during conference play last year is when the season ended. So yes, we were robbed of an NCAA tournament, which gives us some information. Sometimes you see high profile guys that would never have been matched up during the regular season get a chance to go up against each other. And that's important to scouts for sure. They want to see how NBA level guys go up against NBA level guys in individual matchups. But I think even more so what was critical was that last year we had a process in which let, uh, you, can, you might be able to hear my little man cry, and I think you might disagree with the, with the point I'm making. But last year, though, what, what happens, though, is once the, once the regular season ends, then it turns into, as I alluded to before, players working out, getting ready for their individual team workouts. So you have your team workouts that play into it. You have your interviews, which a lot of people will argue is the most important part of the combine now. You have the combine where you get some true measurements on guys, plus you're seeing them in five-on-five settings if they choose to participate and things like that. Um, and, you know, you saw a guy like Keon Johnson, who I got to see work out, breaks the combine record with 48-inch vertical. Things like that can, can pop off for you. And guys certainly raise their, their uh, profile during, during that period. So all of those things last year – we were sort of robbed of other than the interview portion because that was still happening over Zoom. So I would say this year, it's actually been more normalized than it was in the past. The only piece of information I think that we were missing was just seeing these guys in a lot of live action, pressurized situations with fans in attendance. We were robbed of some of that. Adam, you mentioned Keon Johnson. I know you also saw Davion Mitchell. 
who stuck out for who you saw throughout the workout process and what was it about those two guys that you were really excited about? Well, I mean, you just hit on those two individually. I mean, I, let's, let's start with Keon Johnson. I, I think when you looked at him at Tennessee, you would think, oh, he's a guy who's a great athlete. He can defend. We know he'll be able to defend at the next level, but he's not really a great shooter. Well, first of all, he's not just a great athlete. He's otherworldly. I mean, breaks the vert record by like two and a half inches. I mean, it's just absurd. I think it was 45-5, and then he, he jumps a 48. Um, but in addition to that, when you see him, he's extremely lean. He's quick. He's explosive. And then it's just how he grinds in workouts. He is exactly the type of mentality that you like for a guy that you know is going to be an elite defender. He works his tail off. He's aggressive. Um, but he doesn't talk a lot. He's not a guy that's going to be loud in, in his presence. It's, it's more about a guy that's professional about how he gets things done. And you love that about, about Keon Johnson. But, I, but in addition uh, to that part of it, that's just a him on defense. Offensively, his game is much more complete than, than what I think he's, he's been given credit for and certainly what he was able to show off in Rick Barnes' offense. And so, uh, again, we're talking about um, – you know, a, a guy that uh, maybe at the college level, people think they saw one thing on tape, but I, I got a chance to see that this guy is going to be much better offensively. His shooting ability is terrific. Um, he can actually handle it much better than you think. He's going to be great in a team setting. So certainly three and D guy to start, even though people think he can't shoot. And then on the, on the other side, you talk about Davion Mitchell. I mean, he's shorter than you think he is. He really is only stands about six feet tall, but he, he has, he's broad shoulders. He's extremely tough. And Don McLean, who worked out these guys, uh, they're, they're all CAA guys. Don's worked out D'Angelo Russell, Carl Anthony, Towns, Devin Booker, the list goes on and on and on. And Don called him the most professional guard he's ever had in the pre-draft process. The guy hits open shots. He's extremely efficient in terms of his offensive game. And of course, he's one of the best defensive players in, in this draft, if not the best defensive player. He's going to be tremendous as a perimeter defender. So both of those guys, I expect to be standout NBA players. Cool. Uh, Adam, any guys over the last month that uh, through their workouts have improved their stock and looking to take a, take a step where they might have, might not have been as high? Yeah, I would say uh, one of the guys that I think about is Joe Wieskamp from, from Iowa. I think people saw that he's a better athlete than I think he was given credit for while he was in school. Certainly, I can shoot it. Uh, he's going to be able to defend at the, at the NBA level, but he's a much better athlete than I think he ever gets credit for. Certainly, was, that was the case in the, in the draft process. Uh, Bones Highland from VCU. Guys knew him as a, as a good scorer, sort of um, scores in a kind of a different type of way really showed out when he, when he went to the combine and people got a chance to see what those who were watching him throughout the year, I think were pushing and were screaming about like, Hey, Bones Island is a guy that, you know, it's not just the name, like he's actually legit. And it, and, and that turned out to be the case that he's a guy that, um, that really has, has built up. I I'd say a lot of steam, those two guys to me, um, really stand out as guys throughout the process have picked up. And then the other one that's been huge has been Scotty Barnes. So, you know, obviously we've seen over the last few years, Florida State kids immediately come in or they're making an impact, certainly on the defensive end of the floor. Leonard Hamilton, the way he coaches defense, the kind of kids he recruits, instantly they're going to walk into a situation in which they can defend. So, uh, yeah, for sure. I know I know Aaron, is, as a Magic fan, loves him some some FSU guys, there's, there's talk about Scotty Barnes going there, the Jonathan Isaac connection, the whole deal. I mean, Scotty Barnes, the knock against him is that he wasn't that productive at Florida State, but we've already seen that in the past where FSU guys 
they're not as productive because there's not as many possessions. They don't score in that same way. The offense is a little bit more limited. Not to say it doesn't show them off as, as offensive prospects for the NBA level, just in terms of their overall numbers uh, in college. So you, you've got that against them. And really his shooting, uh, I think, gets, gets knocked too. But when you look at his size, his explosiveness, when you watch video of Scotty Barnes, it just jumps out at you. He's, he's an unbelievable athlete. He's incredibly explosive. He's going to be able to defend multiple, maybe all five positions at the NBA level. So, so you love that right away about him. A lot of times NBA teams are looking at how do we vi- envision this guy playing for us in year one, in year three, and, and you can see it. And, and, and sometimes it's tough. And if you can't see it, that's oftentimes when a guy can slide a bit. A guy like Scotty Barnes, you know right away his floor is that he's going to be an outstanding defender of multiple positions at the next level. And as we saw in the NBA Finals, that's absolutely necessary. Adam, our, uh, our executive producer, our CEO, would be upset with me if I didn't ask one question about the dinosaur that is Luka Garza. Is he getting any traction ahead of draft night? No, no. Actually, we, <laughs> here's the thing, though. It's, and and – and, I, I have this belief, and, and maybe I'm way off, but I really believe that with NBA teams going much smaller, I think we're going to see some teams now start to take a look and say, just as I was mentioning before, you know, when everybody zigs, you want to zag. I think we are going to see some forward-thinking um, front office people start to say, hey, we should invest in big men who can, who can, that we can post up with. And now it's not necessarily part of NBA offenses right now. We're seeing all this four out stuff and everybody's switching on defense and they're setting screens 35 feet from the rim. So it makes it awfully hard to uh, put a player in that position if he's not a very good defender. You know, you see Brooke Lopez really struggle when all of a sudden he's put in pick and roll situations. We also see guys, you know, hunting for pick and roll matchups and screen situations. They go defensive matchup hunting. We see that a lot now. It's, it's, it's super commonplace. But here's the other thing that I've seen if you watch. Joel Embiid dominates the Atlanta Hawk front line. You see Giannis, who's used in mid-post, and they repost him in those situations. We don't think of Giannis as a classic big man, obviously, because he brings the ball up the floor. But instead of putting him in ISO situations, you kick the ball out, get it back in the mid-post, and now he's doing damage in the paint again. And so I think we're starting to see defenses kind of soften in the, in the post area. And so why not start to think about how do we counter that? If, I, if I'm a team that has a chance to invest in it, I can get a kid cheap in the second round. And so a Luca Garza, or we saw Drew Timmy this year, Gonzaga, like a guy that has good footwork, a guy that's a post scorer, it's going to be a nightmare because, yes, he's going to have problems maybe defending the perimeter when he's on defense, but you also have to guard him. And so that might be an interesting thing that you do for your, your second unit. So Luca Garza could end up getting drafted in the second round. The one thing about him is he's really shown this year his ability to shoot the basketball. And so at the very least, you know, you're getting a pick and pop big, but he's also going to cause havoc for anyone who has to guard him on, on the defensive end. So I certainly think Luca Garza will be in the NBA next year. Uh, and I think he's going to be one of those guys that's extremely productive. Um, he's better than Frank Kaminsky. So Frank Kaminsky was getting minutes. I mean, granted by, by default, because there were some injury situations going on with Phoenix, but he's getting minutes in an NBA finals. So there's still, the big man is not completely lost in today's NBA. It just looks different. And because Garza showed the ability to improve his shot, not just during the season, but now obviously in the pre-draft process, I expect Luka Garza to be picked up in the second round. Okay. So, so you mentioned Giannis. I'm going to give you a second so you can gloat about this, but our great producer, Daniel Kramer, pulled this up and put this in our call sheet prior to today's show. But the quote or the tweet from you, quote, been watching tape on Giannis Dedekumbo. Wow. Can handle it too. End quote. 
is it safe to say you, you called your shot right there with the new NBA uh, champion that is Giannis? Uh, yeah, so back in 2013 for, for his, his draft year, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say it. I, I was stunned when I was watching tape of him that other people didn't feel the same way I did. There was a lot of talk because he's playing in Greece and it was against poor competition and everyone brings up the same comment. It was grainy YouTube video. But if you went and watched... His length was incredible. And again, just like I mentioned about Scotty Barnes, there's certain guys that when you watch them on tape, they just, I mean, on video, I, I should say, I'm, I'm dating myself now, feel like I'm at the videotape library at, at ESPN. Blockbuster! As, yeah, <laughs> Dan Kramer and, and Bernstein can, can relate to the good old days, you guys. Uh, but but um, no, when, when you watched him, though, there, there was this incredible talent that was just staring at you in the, in the face. It was unbelievable to me in terms of his length. He's bringing the ball up the floor. He had this confidence. He was passing the ball, his vision. He understood sort of how to play, even though he was raw, even though it was new to him. And also the other part that you always have to project is what kind of physical specimen are these guys going to be in a couple of years? And that's the thing that I bring up all the time, that the number one metric that NBA teams look at when they first evaluate a prospect is his age. So if you're ever curious, one of the things that people should do when they look at the draft last year, the first nine picks, I want to say, or eight picks, all 19 years old, every single one of them, because they're all one and done kids. But Chris Duarte is 24 years old. Chris Duarte, if you draft Chris Duarte, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm going to get a guy that comes in who could shoot it and play a great defense. I'm getting a three and D guy. But basically, you have to look at him like he's a free agent that you're getting on a three-year cheap contract. You have to expect him to play right away. His, and he's very strong, too. But, it, but we know sort of what his ceiling is going to be. Whereas other guys in the league, you can look at and start to project out, wait, not only is this guy talented and long, but he's going to be strong in a couple of years. He's going to be physically imposing. Now, sometimes you don't then stick around with him. If you don't, that's the other tricky part in reverse. Chris Duarte, you know, is going to help you, and you know you can get him on the floor. Um, Davion Mitchell, same thing. You know that he's going to help you. You know that you're going to be able to get him on the floor the first couple of years. But some of these other guys that are more project types, that are skinnier, leaner, that you know they might have a bright future, if you don't get them on the floor in the first few years, you have to make a decision when their rookie contract is up whether you're going to do, you know, sign their extension or not. And so that's where it gets to be a tricky game when you're playing the projection game. Sometimes you guess right, but you guess right, and it becomes another organization's goldmine. And so, I don't know, in this situation, I looked at it and I didn't understand why other people didn't feel the same way about Giannis. Then when I went to the draft and saw how just remarkably imposing he was in, in person, and now you think about how much weight he's put on and what he looks like to this day. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll gloat a little, but, um, you know, we all guess right once in a while. Hey, Adam, you should definitely take a victory lap. The folks in the Deer District ought to buy you a beer, whatever it is they drink up there. <laughs> but, uh, but everybody, hey, that's, that's Adam Stanko. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Get some rest before the draft on Thursday, man. <laughs> oh, thank you. You guys, uh, this is so much fun. Anytime you guys want to have me back on, I, I really appreciate being on the old show and, and uh, Kramer and Bernstein and, and the job you guys are doing. It's, it's been fun to watch, like I say, from afar, at least listen to. Pleasure is ours, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was dope. I'll tell you what, Otto, you were not here the last time we had Adam on. And I feel like I learned something new every single day. But how about Adam calling a shot with Giannis? You know, we opened this show talking <laughs> about Giannis. But dude called a shot in 2013, man. 
That, that's that's a hell of impressive. I mean, that's the, you know, that's, it's rare that, you, that you're able to kind of, that's a long time to have that gooseneck going, you know, you know what I'm saying? You're gooseneck? Absolutely. Just standing back, you know, he's been backpedaling now for a while. Just yeah, exactly. Back. I knew this was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like one of those high arcing curry shots it just took like space jam type shots just took a long time to drop. Oh, but uh, you, you, you know magic fans will be lucky I, I i didn't i can't remember if i mentioned this to him or not but he made that correlation to scotty barnes and Giannis. Mm-hmm. well magic fans would only be lucky enough because in that front office when Giannis was drafted john hammond was the gm jeff weltman was one of his close advisors mm-hmm. they now oversee the basketball operations for the orlando magic could scotty barnes be the next Giannis? you can say no it's okay I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say no, and and you'll know where to find me in eight years. <laughs> if you're if you're right, you want to take a victory lap up and down my back, but but be all my guest. You know, it's fine. That's fine. Hey, okay. um, uh, team team USA. What, what's what the hell's going on? Man, I, I watched that game. I, I didn't wake up for the first quarter, but I saw yeah. like quarters two through four. Well, guess what? Neither did they. You know, it's. It's it's a shame because they had that lead in the third, right? And they watched yeah. it dwindle away. And I think they trailed opening the fourth frame by like six points or something like mm-hmm. that. Got it up to a four or five point lead in the fourth. And then just, you know, what was it? France finished the game on like a 13 to one run and the U.S. couldn't put anything through the bucket for the last three minutes. And it just looked so disorganized. And, you know, the possession I know you're thinking of that I'm thinking of is – it was, I think it was the last 15, it might've been the last 20 or 15 seconds left of the game. And they get two wide open looks at the bucket. One was a corner three. And I think the other one was at the top of the arc and just, you know, a guy's down on the ground. Defense is like non-existent in that moment. And they couldn't get anything. And it just looked so disorganized. And like, if it's not for Drew Holiday, like they're not even in that basketball game. You know, I, I know yeah. that, KD had the issues with the fouls and never really got into a rhythm. And, you know, that's, that's something to be talked about later, but there are really, there were really poor decisions made with the way this roster was put together. And we saw it with just how easy of a night Rudy Gobert had. Yeah, no, I mean, look, all, all that is true. And I, I, you know, I want to say a couple of things. First off, if, if you're, you know, and I'm not trying to take anything away from, from France. I mean, that's one. So one of the things, one of the byproducts of the dream team was that you've got, into, you know, it is an international game and people, yeah. you know, kids took notice of what the hell was happening and, you know, it inspired millions of kids from, you know, it's, you know, it's perfectly uh, easy to say that it inspired Rudy Gobert and Evan Fournier, two players who are in the NBA who have had successful NBA careers mm-hmm. and played incredibly well in that basketball game. A- absolutely. And then, and then, you know, on down the line to, you know, Luca and, and, you know, and a host of other players. But so the fact that, I mean, the, the problem I have is, you should, it shouldn't get down to the, the, to the point where it is the last shot. I mean, I still feel like Team USA, you know, Team USA, it felt like to me, anyway, it's showing up for a scrimmage where other teams are showing up for Game 7 in the NBA Finals. I mean, that's the mentality and the mindset I feel like that guys had when they, when they stepped on the floor. So having said, but having said that, you know, this is not 1992. I mean, you, you know, your first team All-NBA all Three of the guys were not American. So if you like, you're talking about, you know, and the two, the two that were Steph Curry and Kawhi, you know, various levels of hurt and injured, and you know, weren't going to be able to, to be part of this team. So it's, you know, it is incumbent upon the guys who are playing to to really kind of bring. It. I think Lillard had had a, had a comment afterward. It's like, you know, guys were playing, 
guys were, you know, guys were playing really hard or something to that effect. And it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they play different on the international circuit than the Americans do. Well, I, I think that was the extent of the quote. Like, Fournier and Gobert played differently because they were representing their country than they did in the NBA games they saw, whether it was, you know, with the Magic, the Jazz, or even against the Celtics when Fournier played for them. But, but, tell, but answer this for me. So did guys like uh, Kobe Bryant, Jason Kidd, like they, the way they played in 08, you know, I mean, they, they were, they were balling. They would have had no, they had no nonsense, all business approach, not taking anybody for granted, putting the hammer down. And they, you know, they, they need to get back to that kind of mentality. You know, I, I can't remember where I saw this, but it was a really compelling article about the way that Team USA is managed and the time commitment that it takes from a coaching perspective, you know, because Pop made that, that really interesting comment. And they talked about this throughout the course of the telecast that they spent two years prepping France because they knew that that was going to be their opening draw in the Olympics. So they spent two years scouting for them, right? right? Well, Greg Popovich doesn't have two years to scout a team, right? Because he's got 82 games that he has to prepare for in a regular NBA season. He has potentially 15 to 20 games that he has to prepare for in a playoff campaign. And, you know, in this article, I can't, I'm really upset that I can't attribute this to who wrote it because it was, it's fantastic, but it basically broke down the time commitment that basically Greg Popovich has to give to the Spurs. Right. And it was in like the 10 year run that coach K had it. And in that time frame, Popovich had coached like 800 and some odd NBA games compared to the 300 and some odd college games that coach K had. And it was, you know, it leads to the question, does a college coach need to be coaching Team USA because of the time commitment that they can devote to it. Now, you know, the counter argument is that like, yeah, college coaches still have to recruit. They still have to manage to put their roster together, but they're not coaching as long as NBA coaches are. You know, and you look at instances like this team with Popovich, the last time he coached Team USA, Larry Brown, like, you know, or is it just that Coach K is such a marvelous coach that he was able to kind of bridge that gap? Well, I mean, Coach K is obviously is is a unique guy, and they and but I think it was also that they had, you know, they, they were working off of the '04 loss, and it, they kind of they they definitely wanted to you kind of reestablish USA basketball wanted to reestablish itself. So I think that that was that was one aspect. Uh, another is, I mean, we, we cannot act like COVID is not happening and, and and has not torpedoed this squad in a way that. I'm not saying that LeBron would have played, but you know, you you would have had it just it just the make, makeup of the team would have been different had 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 everything kind of been the, the normal way. But uh, yeah, we 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 I we'll 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 dive more into the uh, into the Olympus aspect, aspect next time, bro. Yeah, I mean, you're 100. percent It's a boat that's been pushing against the current the entire way, right? Like, how big of a difference would Bradley Beal have made in that basketball game? But they didn't have Bradley Beal because of the health and safety protocols. And so it's just been, this roster has been dealt a tough blow time after time. They're trying to figure it out. They're playing with a system coach. And so, hey, all is not lost. It's one game, right? And we like to act like just because you lose to one one game against France that, you know, they're not going to make the middle round. So they still got two games coming up this week. It'll be interesting to follow. We'll talk about it next week. But Otto, always good, my man. Always love chatting with you. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing.
All right, and with that said, it's time to wrap things up this week. First, special thanks to Adam Stanko for joining us to discuss the NBA draft and why Cade Cunningham may or may not be a future Hall of Famer. Also, special thanks to our producer, Daniel Kramer, for digging up that tweet and for putting this show together. And, of course, to our editor, her name is Kristen Woolley. Also, big ups to our king of content, our CCO, and our executive producer. He is the double B. He is Bruce Bernstein. And as for the rest of us here at Pure Hoops Media, has to offer Here's what's coming up this week. The Mike Wise Show each week brings you entertaining takes, incredible stories, and high-level guests. Full Court with Fisher and Kay has plenty of great college troops talk each and every week. And, of course, Thursdays is Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure. And, of course, we round things out every Friday with the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. And don't forget, Otto and I are back every Tuesday with Catch and Shoot 2.0. Hey, everybody, you know what I'm going to say. COVID numbers are rising across the country, all 50 states. We're, we're, not, we're not in a good way. We need people to get vaccinated, at the bottom line. We need people to wear their masks, wash hands, social distance. Um, so, you know, protect yourself, protect others. Don't forget the people in the medical community and the other frontline workers who are doing their part to keep us safe. So please, please, please get vaccinated. You can save, the life, save your life or the life of someone you love. So for Anne Berlin, I'm Otto Strong. See you next week. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.